WCNC Charlotte. This is Flashpoint, where power and politics collide and the tough questions get asked and answered. Thanks for joining us here on Flashpoint. I'm Ben Thompson. This week we are talking transit. The transformational mobility network will impact thousands, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of Charlotteans, as well as people in the surrounding counties. It's a plan worth more than $13 billion. It would bring more rail lines, buses and routes, streetcar extensions, sidewalks, greenways, and more to the Queen City. As we're about to hear, some city leaders say, we only have a few weeks to get the details worked out if they want to put it on a referendum in the November ballot. Local leaders working through how to put it in motion. Last week, they were in Austin, Texas to get a better sense of how that Texas Capitol got its transit plan done. But members of the Black Political Caucus say more has got to be done before this plan gets their full support. We'll talk to the chair of the caucus coming up in just a few minutes. But first, joining us today, Mayor Pro Tem Julie Isel. She also happens to chair for the purposes of this conversation, the Transportation and Planning Committee. It's been a few months since we've had you on, Mayor Pro Tem. Um, Bring us up to date behind the scenes. Is, is, is the city making any progress when it comes to transit? Well, uh, you know, we are we're getting there. I believe there are um, there's an incredible level of conversation going on between our mayor and the town mayors and our city manager and the town managers and, I, you know, and Norfolk Southern. Right. So until we get the even putting the, the red line aside until we get the northern towns on board we really can't move forward but i think i you know they haven't said no so i i would consider that to be progress but you know the the general assembly is going to have to approve um putting it on the ballot and there's no point asking for that if the towns aren't on board so there is a timeline involved there um you know, and it's I think it's quickly coming to that point. They're going to either have to say yes or no. And if it's yes, what do they want? And so I think that still remains to be seen what that's going to be. You're talking about the timeline. It's the sales tax, this one cent sales tax that that the city cannot enact in it of itself. It has to get permission from the folks, state lawmakers up in Raleigh before you guys can put it on the ballot. Um, right. Hopeful that you would do that in November. Um, you sort of answered my question, but. Uh, is that still the hope? Um, of course, yeah, it's still the hope, but I think there's also a, um, an acknowledgement that it might not, you know, and, and that doesn't mean that we should stop trying. So I think that was one of the biggest takeaways from Austin is they never stopped trying. And if not this November, when would be the next chance, just so people know? It could be the next year, okay. you know, it, it could be the following year. Um, this is a big election year. Is that going to make a difference as to whether or not people agree to support um, a sales tax? So, you know, I, I don't think we should look at it and say, if it's not done by this date, we are never going to get, you know, funding for for our transit plan. Um, we have to just keep trying and we got to try a plan B if there's no, you know, path forward on at this point. Um, procedurally, and that's, you know, procedurally, how, how much time, more time do you think you guys have if you want to get it in November? Uh, I think it would be a matter of weeks. Matter of weeks. OK, uh, you mentioned Austin. I want to talk about Austin. You're fresh off a, a trip down to Lone Star State. Um, you guys talked about a lot of things, transit being one of the big ones. Yeah. What What's the purpose of a trip like this? What are your takeaways now that you're back here? You're talking to some of these same stakeholders. Uh, what are the benefits you got? 
Well, so Austin, you know, the interesting thing about Austin is that they they went through a similar process as we did, but they started a lot earlier, which for them, you know, they feel like was late, right? Their their first referendum for their sales plan, a uh, sales tax plan was in 2000 and that failed. They then had another one in 2004 and they did get their, what they call their red line. They got that out of it. And then they had another one for the, to build out the whole system in 2014 and that failed. Um, but they kept, you know, if, you got to say this about Texas, and I've lived there. You know, they don't take no for an answer very easily. Um, and when they do something, they do it big and bold. And that was the message that that Texans, the Austin community, I should say, the region really sent to them is, if you're going to do this, you need to do it big and bold, and we need to be a part of this process. And I think that was a really good message is that, you know, they failed a couple of times, but they got it passed eventually. They, they changed it. Um, they were very focused on engagement. Um, they had a, a, a coalition of over 60 organizations, nonprofit, business, community, neighborhood, that really um, did, the, did the education part of it for people and, and brought back um, responses to what people wanted to see in the referendum. Do you feel like you have people either also on council, but also regionally speaking, or up in Raleigh, that aren't willing to think big when it comes to transit. Um, yeah, <laughs> I'm going to be really honest about that. I've always said, you know, we're a banking town, and what did bankers do best? They mitigate risk. So I think we think like that a lot, and sometimes we've just got to be willing to talk big, you know, and 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 find out if that is really what people want. Um, or, or listen to people, and if they come up with the big ideas, we need to really pursue that. The Austin plan was very data-driven, um, very outcome-driven. Um, I think one of the big differences is that they um, that I see between our plan. I have been a proponent of aligning the blue line with the silver line uptown. I just I just can't get my head around having two different stops, two blocks apart, and thinking people are going to make that transfer. Um, I'm also very concerned about it not going right to the airport. Austin's doing that. So, uh, you know, I, I, I think that um, Austin said, fine, this is what we're going to do. And they went for it. They're tunneling <laughs> through their uptown. Now, tunneling is very expensive. It's about a billion dollars a mile. So I'm not sure that's what we need necessarily. Um, but they're, yeah, they had some, some big bodacious goals and they met them. They split their tax 50-50 so that 50% of it would go to transit, the line itself, and 50% would go to um, bike and ped projects. So that, it was actually two pieces on the ballot um, and they the 50% the that included bike and pedestrian infrastructure passed by a larger margin by 70% versus 60%. I thought that was interesting. Real quickly, last question. Uh, while you guys were there, I, we heard from the Black Political Caucus and and they had some concerns about this, chiefly things like gentrification. And listen, we've seen this happen on the blue line already. Um, and, and I know Austin's plan sort of works at that as well, as far as making sure that people are not displaced and making sure there's affordable housing. Um, yeah. what, you say, what would you say to their critiques of the current plan? I think they're absolutely right. They're, they're smart to get ahead of that conversation. Since we don't really even have a coalition put together yet to help educate people and inform people and get feedback, um, Austin put uh, aside $300 million out of their um, 
tax allotment, if it passed, they said 300 million is going to go to um, what they call their equity tool, which focuses on displacement and and preventing gentrification. And that was a big takeaway. I thought that was a great idea. Um, we've got to really get our head around buying land and sitting on it, which is hard to do when we could be using that money to buy properties right now. But that's the only way you're going to really preserve the land around the light rail for affordable housing and, and, and so that people are not displaced. Protect it for those folks. All right. Mayor Pro Tem, also chair of the Transportation Planning Committee, Julie Eisel. Julie, thank you as always for coming on. We appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you, Ben. Welcome back to Flashpoint. We continue to talk transit this morning and joining us now, the chair of the Black Political Caucus here in Charlotte, making a return to Flashpoint, Stephanie Sneed. Stephanie, thanks for coming on. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Uh, a week ago, a couple of weeks ago, uh, your group came out and said, hey, listen, if while everybody's talking about transit and this huge $13 billion plan, in order to get our support, um, a few things need to happen. Um, bring us up to speed. Uh, what would your group like to see? Because there's a lot of stakeholders in this. I mean, so many of them. It, it, it's, it's hard to even keep track. Um, but, but you have a very power, powerfully political group here in town. Uh, what would you guys like to see get prioritized? So there are three things that we're asking for. Um, one is uh, insurances with minority vendor participation. We're also asking for affordable housing along uh, light rail stops as well as dollars dedicated to anti-displacement measures. There's a history here, whether you look at the blue line or, or some of the other uh, transit, um, that has not always been prioritized uh, by city leaders. And that is when you have gentrification, whether it happens um, in your Optimus Park or South End or Historic West End. Um, and that is the concern, correct? Yes, absolutely. So um, what has happened is, uh, just to give you a little history, like the, the Black Political Caucus hesitantly supported um, transit uh, tax in 2007. And it was on the premise that it would increase economic development on, along Betty's Ford Road and that the streetcar would be in place by 2013. As you know, um, the streetcar has just recently um, been completed in that area and economic development has kind of stalled um, on the Betty's Ford Road area. So that's why the Black Little Caucus has a stake in this because uh, the, the premise is that we no longer can can devote our votes to something that we aren't necessarily reaping the benefits the benefits of. So that's why we are we are we're paying attention to this issue and it is important to us. Like this is as you, as you described a a billion dollar plan but who's who's reaping the benefits from it. Um it is it is undeniable that economic development um, increases, transportation increases economic development. So for every dollar that's spent transportation development, that goes to, it equals to $4 for economic development. So again, but who's getting these dollars? So that kind of goes into the premise of like, you know, we have to make sure one, it can transform. Yes, these economic development can transform neighborhoods, but it also can leave people out. Um, like as you just mentioned against Optimus Park, all areas like that, Wilmore, for example, has lost 40% of his black black residents after transit at the light rail came through the area. Basically what you're saying is, hey, transit is exciting. It's great for the economy. It's great for neighbors. As long as 
we still have our seats at the table and that we're not displaced and, and then all this great economic boom happens and then all of a sudden all those people who've called those neighborhoods you used to talk about Beattysburg Road for decades and decades and decades all of a sudden they're missing out on it. Yes, absolutely. Just just take an example like for the South End area. So let's ask our question like this. That is considered um, from my recent reads that it is the ranked the number two area for like office development in the country. But how many um, minority vendors participated in that process? Um, who's occupying those office spaces? Who is uh, op occupying the new thousands of dollars of rental units? Like that neighborhood absolutely does not look the same and it does not look like people like me. So we have to be, there has to be an intentional plan to put this in place. This has happened in other cities, comparable cities across the country. That's why we had our press conference right before city leaders um, and business leaders as well went to visit a city like Austin. Austin, yeah. Austin for example, had $7 billion uh, transit tax funding um, come in and they committed to $300 million for anti-displacement measures. So in the same breath, we're asking for something simpler. We're asking for that 4% of total transportation funding be dedicated to anti-displacement measures um, as well. Uh, you you talked about Beatty's Ford a second ago. As of right now, the streetcar goes up to like right at basically French Street or where the Brookshire Boulevard, um, you know, crosses Beatty's Ford. Um, specifically with that line, let's let's take it as just an example. What would you like to see happen? I cannot stress enough. We have to have anti-displacement measures in place and minority vendor opportunities in place. Um, there have been some improvements for the city's usage of minority vendors, but we're asking that it is comparable to what the population is. So measures, anti-displacement measures, like what does that look like along, you know, that corridor or any or any of corridors mm -hmm. where there's um, light rail development. So that looks like things like putting affordable houses in place, making sure legacy uh, businesses and residents and rental units can be preserved and improved to ensure that we are not displacing our, our legacy business owners as well as our legacy residents that are in those communities. Like it has to be an inclusive process. You've got a lot of proud neighbors and neighborhoods um, yes. th that, that want to be a part of that, that future planning and understandably so. All right, Stephanie Sneed with the Black Political Caucus here in Charlotte. Stephanie, thank you as always. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. More Flashpoint after this. Welcome back to Flashpoint. There are currently 11 people running for Charlotte's four at-large city council seats, six Democrats, five Republicans. That list will cut down to four on each side after the May primary. You can see the names on your screen of who's running now. Now, the biggest surprise for a lot is the name you see on that left-hand column, second up from the bottom, Patrick Cannon. If you've been here any time, you know the name. Back in 1993, Cannon was the youngest city council member in Charlotte's history. He won at 26 years old. 20 years later, he went on to become mayor. However, just 114 days into office, he was arrested on public bribery charges. I can remember I had just had done an interview with him at the time. He spent time in prison, was released in 2016. Well, now he filed once again to run for city council. This week, during a sit down with our own Hunter Signs, Cannon is speaking out about why he's running and what he's learned since his time in prison. First off, I just want to know, how are you doing? I'm doing okay. Yeah. You know, still staying prayed up, uh, still engaging in the community, doing yeah. what I can, where I can, uh, trying to 
be a good dad and yeah. um, just trying to make a good living day by day. Yeah. How have the past few years been for you? Uh, interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, from the perspective of uh, seeing where there's a lot of love, seeing where even still there may be some questions, mm -hmm. uh, which is fair, uh, but all in all, good. Take me back to that day when you were arrested. What was your reaction? How did you tell your wife? Uh, it, it was the lowest of lows in terms of how one could ever feel about anything. Mm. Uh, and uh, it was not the kind of thing that, uh, that me nor my family uh, were, were proud of. I was very embarrassed by it, mm -hmm. um, very sorry for it, uh, because that's not Patrick Cannon. Mm. It's not the true Patrick Cannon. Did you learn your lesson? Oh, absolutely. Uh, to, so much to the extent that I, it's like when you get that one whipping, mm. hmm, that's a really good one, and you don't want it back, mm -hmm. uh, that's learning your lesson. That's where I am. So absolutely. How did this idea come about over the past, I guess, few years to get back into public office? You know something? I, I'm one of the few, so they say, native Charlotteans. Mm -hmm. And I have a genuine love for our city. That said also, and in the wake of me asking for forgiveness, right, I feel like I really can't get that true level of forgiveness mm -hmm. until I'm able to really get back to a place where I can show people that I still have worth. Why should people trust you after you did what you did? How do you gain the trust of voters who you are asking to put a check mark by your name? Hmm. You gain that level of trust by one asking for, yes, yeah, still for forgiveness, right? And asking for that second chance. Because guess what? There's no way that you can ever find your way to be able to trust me if you don't give me the opportunity. But why should you be respected with that trust? Because over the years in which I have served our community, um, I have shown that I can be trusted. Mm -hmm. I've shown that I can be trusted because when it came down to having leadership that needed to be fiscally conservative and socially responsible, we represented that. Have you spoken to Mayor Vi Lyles since making this decision or beforehand? Was she one of the ones who cheered you on? What has that relationship been like? Vi's been kind. Uh, the mayor's been kind, I should say. And uh, the last time we saw each other, uh, it was around Christmas. Mm -hmm. And we were both at the mall, and she had her grandbaby. I was with my son. And she's like, Patrick. And I was like, oh, Vi. You know? and, uh, we went over and talked for a little bit and uh, kept it moving. But Vi uh, has been nice. Vi was kind enough, even when I was away, to write to me. If you get elected, what are your priorities? What do you want to make happen for this city? You know what? Economic development is still key for me. It's still first and foremost because uh, when I look at poverty and what people are going through in our community, uh, it's sad. It's really, really sad. and. Um, it creates in me a burning spirit and a desire to want to do what I can to be about trying to create uh, better paying jobs mm -hmm. for upward mobility. That's important. 
I know uh, you're focused on this campaign first for an at-large position, but I have to ask, will you ever run for mayor again? I have no interest uh, in running for mayor, Mm. uh, largely in part because of this. I'm used to walking in high grass, weeds, uh, wet stuff. That's where the true things take place when you're talking about what happens on the city council level. Such an interesting story. Uh, a public life now 30 years in the making and, and looks like there might be another chapter at it. All right, more Flashpoint after this. Welcome back to Flashpoint. Before we leave, you wanted to share this post that I put up on Facebook this week. Picture from the Guardian newspaper. The owner of this 12-year-old dog refused to leave him behind as they escaped Ukraine. Dog kept falling down, couldn't stand anymore. The man says that evidently they've been advised, don't take your dog, it's too much trouble. But as he says, dogs are part of the family. Of course, we continue to think about and pray for those folks in Ukraine. We'll see you back here next week.